transforming society. You can't do it if you haven't transformed the institutions and structures that built it the way it is. And you also can't do it if you aren't willing to change yourself and to give up, right? And so I feel like there's a lot of that over the course of the year of like what it means to give up, to let go, to step aside, to move out of the way has been really powerful. But again, we're not, we're nowhere near all the way there yet. It's really the work ahead. Hi, I'm Tim Sanova, and welcome to Work Shouldn't Suck, a podcast about, well, that. Earlier this year, podcasting's favorite co-host, Lauren Ruffin, and I produced Work Shouldn't Suck's Ethical Reopening Summit. The event took place online Tuesday, April 27th, and featured eight sessions, 25 amazing speakers, and covered a whole host of topics related to the ethical reopening of workplaces amid the COVID-19 pandemic. We raced to produce the summit from start to finish in just three weeks as we felt the urgency and stress mounting as workplaces were in the midst of reopening decisions. Several months on, we still feel the content is as necessary as ever, so we decided to release each of the sessions in podcast form. In each of the eight sessions, you'll hear the conversations just as the summit attendees did. As a reminder, in late April 2021, COVID vaccine distribution was just gaining speed, and we had yet to begin hearing about the Delta variant. From that vantage point in time, it very much looked like by fall 2021, things might be settling back into somewhat of a quote-unquote normal routine. As I record this preamble in fall 2021, that's not the case. We're now talking about breakthrough infections, booster shots, schools reopening and closing again, hospital ICUs are packed in states across the U.S., and still how to safely gather indoors as temperatures again begin to drop with the change in seasons. In the Ethical Reopening Summit's closing plenary, Into the Future, Lauren Ruffin and I are joined by the amazing Deborah Cullinan. We discuss a whole host of things, including what does it look like to co-create a future where everyone thrives? So let's jump over to the conversation. Hey everyone, I'm Tim Sonova, and welcome to our closing main stage. It's like we just started the summit and now we're at the closing main stage. It's wild. It is wild. What a day. What a day, indeed. Well, in starting this session, I'm Tim Sonova. I'm a white man with medium to short brown messy hair. I have blue rectangular glasses and salt and pepper unshaven look. I'm wearing a black sweater that zips up with a blue dress shirt, blue tie, and I'm sitting in front of wood paneling. Lauren? Yeah. And hey, I'm Lauren. I'm still an openly black person with brown skin, wearing a black sweatshirt, wearing a green hat. I'm in a room with a white door and a white dresser behind me and a quickly growing pandemic Lego village on top of the dresser. Nice. Well, and speaking about the pandemic, Last year, when the pandemic arrived and things began to shut down, you and I decided, you know what we should do? We should host a daily live stream show and just invite all of our friends to to come onto the daily live stream who happen to be fascinating and amazing people. And for five weeks every day, we hosted that live stream and connected with many of you who are here and many of the guests that are on this. And and this sort of led to the summit. Laura and I were talking about what we should do this year. We said, you know what we did last year over five weeks, let's just do it all in one day. Yeah. And and as, as we felt the world was beginning to open up quicker and quicker, we're like, and we should do it really soon. And so that's why the summit came together with 
just over three weeks notice. So again, a huge thanks to all of you for being with us. A huge thanks to all of our, our speakers and, and panelists. From those 33 amazing guests last year on our morning show, we were pleased to spend time with Deborah Cullinan, who has agreed to come back on and talk with us again. Brave soul. Brave soul to be back. Deborah is currently the CEO of the Yerba Buena Center for the Arts. She is one of the nation's leading thinkers on the pivotal role of arts organizations can play in shaping our social and political landscape and has spent years mobilizing communities through arts and cultures. Prior to joining YBCA, almost 10 years ago, she was the executive director of San Francisco's Intersection for the Arts. She's a co-founder of Culture Bank, co-chair of the San Francisco Arts Alliance, vice chair of the Yerba Buena Garden Conservancy on the boards of Community Arts Stabilization Trust and Human Made. I should have just posted this in the chat because it's an awesome long bio. I will post this in the chat. She's a field leader in residence at Arizona State University's National Accelerator for Cultural Innovation, a former innovator in residence at the Kauffman Foundation. She currently serves on the Governor's Jobs and Business Recovery Task Force, and her passion for using art and creativity to shift culture has made her a sought-after speaker at events and conferences around the world, and one of the reasons we are so excited that she is here today joining us. Deborah, welcome to the summit. Thanks for having me and for reading that long bio. Yeah. And I didn't know we were going to be that formal. It's always weird to realize your friends are kind of big shots. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. I'm glad to be here. Cool. How are you doing today? You know, I'm I'm doing pretty well. So I'm in San Francisco. The sky is blue. This is the land of the Ohlone Ramaytush people. And I am a white woman. My hair is like brownish red. My eyes are blue. I've got some red lipstick on. And I'm in a bluish gray room with a painting behind me and a plant trying to get in as well. And the blue sky is what's making me feel good today. Oh, that's good. I was talking with someone yesterday who left the Bay Area for Atlanta, who reminded me of the orange skies that y'all had out there, which to me was like this when I think of the pandemic, there are a couple of moments. One of them is obviously the, the, the live stream as a bookend on one side. And then for me, that orange sky, because we were talking about, I was talking about coming to the Bay Area, was it like a middle point? And now I feel like perhaps this is another transitional point, even though we're not at the end of the pandemic. But everything that happened in the Bay Area over the last year has been pretty pivotal, I think, and transformative. How are you reflecting on that and holding and holding all that right now? Yeah, I mean, your mentioning of the sky and and my mentioning of the sky, it's like complicated to have joy when the sky is blue for days on end because what we really need is rain. Mm -hmm. And we know we're already, you know, some of the cities in the Bay Area region are already putting folks on lower water use. We don't anticipate a good year ahead in terms of water, you know, weather, fires, drought. And there's just something about living and that constancy that I think helps us to stay, you know, somewhere at the edge, like just kind of constantly asking, like, why were we doing it that way? And what is, you know, what is the tomorrow going to be? I, I remember a few years ago in the fire season when everything shut down and I just started to think about this is the role of an art center now. Like, to be a place with circulated air that can be safe for people. Mm -hmm. 
And so how do all of these conditions and things around us really affect the way we think about our institutions as responders and as resources? Yeah. And so, you know, this, this thing is named the Ethical Reopening Summit. And we were in the green room talking about how grateful Tim and I are as co-CEOs of Practice Atlas to not have to think a lot about reopening because we made the choice before the pandemic to go 100% remote. You did another, you did a weird thing, which was you declared YBCA open months ago. Can you talk a bit about that and what that means? You know, for us, and it kind of picks up on the conversation that the three of us had at the beginning of the pandemic, it, 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 it's really about not reopening, but reimagining and not returning, but regenerating. And so as we, as an organization, started to really think about what the future holds and what our dream state is, like who do we really want to be when we get to the other side, it was not to return. And so our declaration was, we are open and we're doing open differently. So the idea was to manifest what it can feel like to turn a building inside out, to serve a community that can't come inside, to work with artists to really capture this moment, all of it, like the, the pain, the trauma, the injustice, and also the hope. And so it's very much about really putting a stake in the ground around the idea that we have to turn our spaces outwards. We have to think differently about what we're calling upon people to do when they engage with our organization. So it was the beginning of a journey and it's all one great big experiment you know, we're not actually urgent to, you know, to, as I say, to reopen, we're much more urgent about what we can be and how we might be able to imagine and realize that not by taking the lead, but by following artists and community members who are really the best designers of our systems and structures anyway. Mm -hmm. From a, a practical process standpoint, what did that look like? How did you do that? Yeah, I mean, it's a lot of different things. It, it Part of it is just in reimagining the structure of YBCA so that you, we moved, you know, very far away from top-down curatorial silos to one big program and engaged team. We tried to think about all of the artists that we were working with and artists that we were working with before the pandemic and before shelter in place and to ask them, what do you want to do? What are the stories you want to tell? You know, what are the messages that you want to be able to provide to the public. And so taking a team that was very used to producing, you know, making exhibitions, producing performances, and turning that team to the idea that the building, the facade, the campus around us is essentially, uh, you know, a canvas, a place to play. And also to emphasize not so much the product, but rather the process of art making. And so you see like Caleb Duarte's piece, The Monument as Living Memory, is a really good example of this because, you know, it has been dynamically evolving over the course of many, many months in collaboration, deep collaboration with artists and creative collectives in the Bay Area in order to not only, you know, interrogate what monuments mean to us, think about the role of street art, you know, really engage the uh, dialogue around that, but also to just be really responsive, like to be able to not think so up, down, you know, like something goes up, it's static, it comes down, we go back to the same, but rather more like layers, like layers. Like when an artist comes and works with us and we put something on the wall or on the building or on the sidewalk, what is it like to not just go neutral? Like put it up, take it down, go neutral. 
Like, what is that? And how do you actually instead make layers and create an environment where the process is what you're experiencing and where the inquiry is what people get to experience? So, you know, that's how it has evolved. I think, you know, in as we move forward, the environment that we hope to create and co-create and work with our community to do is really a public square, like a dynamic, ongoing, interactive kind of environment. So again, not so much about up, down exhibitions or a season of performances, but a dynamic environment that can be of service to the community. What's What's been the hardest about that reimagining process? Is it is it the internal change of like various, you know, staff members or your colleagues' risk tolerance? Is it just not being able to sort of see what's coming ahead because it hasn't been built yet and it doesn't exist anywhere? Or, or is it something else that's sort of, what's been hardest? I mean, I think you're kind of getting to what I, what I would say is hardest. I, I think that change is hard because of the uncertainty it provides. And so, it, it, you know, for me, I think if you don't know where you're going, it's really hard to trust the path. And if you came onto that path with a certain definition of the expertise and skills and, you know, values that you can bring to the table, and you can't see how those things that you bring fit in and will help guide us there, it's really challenging. And so, you know, a, a big shout out to the YBCA team. As you know, there has just there have just been all kinds of uh, just so much uncertainty. Where are we going? And so really trying to create an environment where it's okay to test something, fail, you know, iterate, correct, decide it was a terrible idea. But at the end of the day, we have to try. And so, you know, I think the hardest thing is to create conditions that make people feel valued and clear and safe in pursuit of something that is not yet known. What's one thing that you've tried over the, the past year where you're like, yeah, that was cool. I'm really glad that worked out. And what's one thing that you're like, that did not go as planned. We should have, had, had we known that that was going to end that way, we should have not done that. Oh, that's a really good question. I mean, I, because it's so fresh in my mind, I, I will say that the YBCA 100 Summit was just an, an, it was an incredibly grounding and inspiring experience for me to, you know, to see the way that we could work with Crux in particular to really test and play with environments and experience in, in the virtual space was really powerful. But maybe more for me, it was the feeling of together and of community that began to brew among the artists. This feeling that, you know, you, you say all these things, like we want to be a place that shifts resource and power to artists. We want to put artists and community members in the lead. We believe that artists and community mem members are the best designers of their own future, but can we really do it? Are we really going to do it? You know, and, and, and to me, just hearing and feeling the energy, I'm not saying we're there by any means, but I'm saying it's possible. And to know it's possible is just, it is so gratifying to me. So that's, that's one side of it, right? But the other side of it is to say those things and strive to do those things means that you are, you know, you're, you're, you really are in it and you have to be willing to change, right? Like transforming society, you can't do it if you haven't transformed the institutions and structures that built it the way it is. And you also can't do it if you aren't willing to change yourself 
and to give up. Right. And so I feel like there's a lot of that over the course of the year of like what it means to give up, to let go, to step aside, to move out of the way has been really powerful. But again, we're not, we're not nowhere near all the way there yet. It's really the work ahead. As far as things that maybe haven't gone well, I I think it's a little bit more like the way what came to mind when you were asking the question is more about the role that YBCA has played specifically in San Francisco over since, you know, during the pandemic as the co-chair of the San Francisco Arts Alliance and just being in this community for such a long time. The instinct is to be of service, to really help, to raise raise our hands all the time. Like, what can we do? What can we do? And I think that maybe what we didn't understand is that sometimes even raising the hand isn't necessarily the right thing to do as a white-led organization, as an organization that is, you know, relatively big and depending on how you look at it. And so for me, it's much more about like, how do we better understand, how do we constantly interrogate and understand our right place in the world? Yeah. And I am really curious about that piece because y'all have stepped into some stuff that's not purely creative. I mean, you're getting into, you know, basic income, and really some first responder type things and almost some quasi government type things. How are you holding that? Like when you're raising your hand for that sort of thing, how does that feel stepping into, into those spaces that are relatively new for the infrastructure that's been built with YBCA? Yeah. I mean, there's a lot in that question, right? Like there's just like, how do you build capacity for new lines of business and new pathways for an organization that operated in a certain way, you know, but for us, as you know, the transformation has been pretty thorough and there are three focus areas for YBCA. One is YBCA create, one is YBCA champion, one is YBCA invest. And we look at all three of these things as essential together. Like you can't do one, you got to do all three because they're really for us a sort of ecosystem development, you know, set of it, like it's about building an ecosystem of artists who are working to advance health and well-being in their communities artists who are committed to cultural equity and racial justice and like how do we build the capacity how do we change the policy how do we create new kinds of curatorial and program structures that are much more inclusive that are driven by artists that are not top down and then how do we invest differently how do we think about economic security in our sector how do we address just what is wrong with it so those that collection of things makes all of this make sense. You know, like we have to do all three of these things. In terms of, you know, the guaranteed income program and some of the programs that we've been doing in collaboration with city government, it's just tough. You know, when you use public dollars, there are are all kinds of things that you have to consider that you wouldn't have to consider when, you know, if you're operating with private money. (laughs) And I also think that it reveals like large amounts of public dollars going to YBCA, even if all of those dollars are going to go back out into the community it's still wrong, right? Like that the money goes to this one organization. And and part of the reason why we're driven to do it is to test and understand better ways of approaching it, to build knowledge so that we can shift policy around how we fund artists and community-based arts organizations, like those that have been doing the work for decades and haven't been funded. So it's, it's putting yourself out there, right? But it's also a commitment to trying to understand and interrogate and even prove that some things aren't, are, are actually not a good idea. 
you know, and, and so even with the guaranteed income, I think there's just a ton to learn there about what is good about that and what is not good about that. And what can we learn as a field about the right way to think about providing a floor for artists and creative workers? Yeah. And like, is that, is a program like that a springboard that ultimately helps? Like, are there particular points in, in a creative person's life where you can inject that sort of capital into that? that becomes a springboard to middle class 10 or 15 years later. I mean, that's the durational sort of data that I'm really interested in with that program. And you're sort of revealing one of the challenges with it, which is, you know, it's pilot, it's a limited amount of dollars. We would have preferred to provide this guaranteed income for fewer artists for a longer period of time, not because we wanted only to support fewer artists, obviously, but more because we wanted to gather as much information as we could. And so that kind of durational, like we need to be able to understand things and we need the time to understand things. Otherwise we keep kind of creating reactive policy that has such detrimental effect for so long, like way longer than that, you know, 15 years that you're talking about, we're talking about hundreds of years, right? So it just, it, to me, it feels like we just, we just underestimate how important it is to learn. Mm -hmm. There's a question here that feels related to what we've been talking about. And in terms of new models and the change you have made this year due to the pandemic, what specific changes have you made you wish to keep? And what old models are you happy to get rid of? That's dangerously close to the suitcase question. It is a I know, suitcase I know, question. I know. You need to parse it. You need to hold the things that you say for the suitcase question. I'll go later. big. I'll go big on the suitcase question. Yeah, that, that is like we could spend all the time on that. I, for me, you know, coming into the pandemic, we had already been undertaking a, a real transformational effort at YBCA, and all I can say about it for us, and this is for our organization. All I can say about it is it wasn't bold enough mm. and it was, it, it, you know, it wasn't fast enough. It wasn't bold enough. Um, like for us, the right thing is as much change as possible. Right. And so I, I know that's not a really specific answer to the question, but we are just well situated just because we have a really amazing board that's open to this kind of inquiry because the team is so dynamic and powerful, you know, that we have the opportunity to explore the very edges, to toss as much of it out as possible. And again, back to the learning, the piece about learning so we can learn. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I'm not saying that everyone should throw the baby out with the bathwater. I'm just saying for us, it feels right to try to do as much of that as we can. Yeah. And you've got a pretty high risk tolerance as a leader. You, you think? <laughs> yeah, for sure. I don't know. I mean, it's just like we all have been through so much. And I, I just don't know what else we're supposed to do, but try. And, I, I, you know, the worst that can happen is that we fail. I, to me, what would be much worse is not trying. Mm-hmm. I'm with you on that. And I think there's a particular sense of urgency over the last year. I think it's important to acknowledge that like, we have to, we really have to be bold. And, and go big to not go back to where it was, where, where it really wasn't working for most people. And the data bears that out. And I think our emotions and our feelings and our grief bears that out. But yeah, I really, I really appreciate that. Yeah. We should, we should say for the people who heard suitcase question and we just left it as a cliffhanger, 
we're going to close our interview, which I guess is another cliffhanger, with a question that Deborah asked us during our live stream last year. And we thought, well, if she's back on the show, she's back at the summit. So let's ask her it. And so you'll, when we get to that, you'll understand what the question is and why we are sort of, I guess, threading the needle not to answer the question before we ask the question. Yeah. I want to dig into some of the, the artists who've inspired you over the last year. What, what are we seeing? I was part of the 100. That was so hopeful and so amazing. But what else are you seeing that you think points the way to a better future? You know, I think about artists that we've been working with in West Oakland and in our artist-led giving circle, Hassan, Rashid, Faye, Darmwawi. Like these, these are people who fundamentally understand like shared future and interdependence and and it bears out in the work, you know, in Hussein's photography and like, it's just, it bears out. And so for me, it's been this kind of collective inspiration. Like the story of the artist led giving circle is a powerful one, right? Because, you know, we were working with a group of artists from different parts of the country, including the Bay area. And we were talking about investment and preparing for the SOCAP, the social capital markets conference and thinking about how these artists would pitch their work in the context of like a social impact investment conversation. And the question arose around like, well, what would happen if one of us was funded, if one of us got investment? And the immediate answer was like, oh, well, we'd all be funded. And so it's, it's and, and that applies not only to the way the artists that we're working with might be thinking about financial resource, but also about resource in general and just how we work together and how we can together better steward the assets that we have. You know, there's, I mentioned Caleb, Cece Carpio, whose work is on the window of YBCA on Mission Street. You know, people like Cece and others who really are thinking about how to chronicle the time, which is so important, but also unearth the history. And, you know, to my mind, that's where we need to be going is we have to see where we've been and what we've done Mm -hmm. in order to stand in a present moment with the ability to imagine a better future. And these artists are really willing to do that work. Yeah. I'm really curious about how we're making sense of this period of time in real time and how we're centering creators of color. And we know that in the Bay Area, Latinx communities have been hit the hardest around the country. You know, Black communities have been hit really hard by the virus. And, you know, having a platform for artists of color to be able to tell their stories contemporaneously, it feels like it's so important. And it's the only way to me that we're going to come out of this with any sort of headiness about like how it happened so that we don't get back to the thing that caused it. And I do think that a number of the artists you're working with are doing a really good job with that documentation, which to me is like critical and it gets lost in times when everything's happening so fast. And there's not really a question there, but it's more of a wondering, like, how are we holding all these things at the same time, you know? Well, and it just makes me think of the YBCA 10, the group of 10 artists who are working with us over the next year, at least. For me, what I come to is, you know, what does it mean that our structures and systems have actually done the opposite of creating the conditions for really unleashing creativity, for really making it possible for artists and creative people of all kinds to do the work. Like it's such a trip when you really think about that, that we've actually created structures that stifle that. 
either from an economic security perspective or from like the way we approach and transact with artists rather than build deep relationships with them. Again, not a question either, but just what was coming to mind when you were talking. And I just feel hopeful that we better understand now how important creativity at its maximum is to us as a society and that we can just hold on to that. Don't forget that. I will follow up your two profound statements that weren't questions with a question. Deborah, unless I pulled an outdated bio, is it you're on the governor's jobs and business recovery task force? Is that that's currently one of the things you're doing? I was I I was indeed on his jobs and business recovery task force, but the whole thing came to an end. So I need to update my bio, but I did serve on that along with Mayor Breed's economic recovery task force here in San Francisco. And I'll tell you. That was a trip because I, with Governor Newsom's task force, because I was the only arts person of like, I don't know exactly what the total amount of people was, but somewhere between 100 and 150 people. And it was, you know, a lot of focus on superstars in the state of California, a lot of uh, folks in the tech sector and people leading really large organizations. And so it was a really kind of fun, anomalous place to be. And to the stuff that we've been talking about here, it was not difficult to capture our governor's attention around the incredibly essential role that artists and arts organizations and creative workers in California play. And the reason it was not difficult is because he had hit a wall. We had all hit a wall. Like it was a terrible spot, like racial injustice, systemic violence, you know, wildfires, we can't get people to wear their masks. People won't trust to take the vaccine. You know, like hitting a wall somehow opened my hearts and minds to what's possible. Yeah, I want to take a hard left turn because I'm thinking a lot about the advocacy work that y'all have been doing or you have done for historically. But I think, uh, God, it was advocacy. California has passed some really interesting laws in the last year. That have impacted, you know, the gig workers who we know are disproportionately artists and people of color. What's happening there now? Because there was a lot of like nervousness around some of these laws of how it was going to impact the nonprofit sector and how it was going to impact 1099 folks who, yep. you know, what what's happening there? And where does YBCC its role in plugging into those policy and advocacy conversations? Has it changed since the pandemic or has it, has it remained the same? You know, I think we've always played a really active role thinking not only about, you know, legislation and public policy advocacy, but also just championing the role the arts play in other sectors. And so I think it's very deeply rooted and and very important to what we do because we're trying to raise awareness and, and build, grow the demand for artists and arts organizations. I think that in particular, AB5 and, you know, legislation that has been quite controversial as it relates to contract workers and other gig-related workers. This kind of goes to this whole thing of like, we get really reactive and we develop and pass legislation that is not entirely thoughtful. And, you know, again, it's top down Mm -hmm. instead of bottom up. Like, wouldn't it make sense to maybe communicate with the people that are going to be affected most, which would be the workers themselves. But the good news of that on that is that there's been a lot of advocacy and that has resulted in edits, edits to the legislation. So it's moving in the right direction. And the other piece that's good about it is it did raise awareness in general about the state of those workers who are contracting, gigging, 1099 and how many of them there are, in addition to the fact that 
you know, you could argue that artists were the first gig workers. Well, yeah, that's where the, <laughs> that's where it comes from, right? Yep. Yeah. And, and I think there's just an, a lot of opportunity right now to think not only about like art related policy, but how art and artists are integrated into policy. And I think there's some really exciting opportunities there as well, not only at the state level, but federal. Well, speaking about innovating, what does an innovator in residence at the Kauffman Foundation do? What did that experience look like? That was awesome. There were seven of us and we were inside of the entrepreneurship program. And our job was to think up and dream up and test out big, hairy ideas and also be a bit disruptive inside of the foundation. And I was the arts person. I, I really like it when it's not just all of our, all of us arts people, but like, you know, I was working with folks who were like on some other level when it comes to social finance, you know, really thinking differently about law, running a whole new way of training young people towards work in the tech sector. So, you know, as usual, it was about really helping everyone think about how you integrate the arts into what we all do. And I got to spend a lot of time in Kansas City, which I came to love. And I got to know the arts ecosystem there, which was, you know, really inspiring. And lots of good barbecue. That is right. Lots of good barbecue. And I tried to find barbecue that was named after a woman. Oh. But I I have yet. So if anyone, you know, like, you know, Tom's barbecue, Bob's barbecue, like I, I'm, not, I'm not coming up with any of the actual real names right now. Yeah. But yeah, it became of interest to me to see if there was any barbecue in Kansas City, a restaurant that was named after a woman. And I don't know. So if anyone knows, tell me. Yeah. Interesting. I'll, I'm going to do some research on that. But you brought up capital. And I think one of the, I spent so much time thinking about how money moves into and out of various ecosystems. I don't want to talk about NFTs or blockchain or Bitcoin, but I feel like what I want to say is over the last couple of months, and and San Francisco feels like it's sort of ground zero for this conversation uh, about revenue generation and how we can maybe modernize how capital flows, because it really hasn't changed much in 400 years. It's it's the same basic sort of method of transfer. I'm going to have to talk about NFTs. (laughs) Somehow I knew this was coming. Well, I think the bigger thing is when we're talking about these new technologies and new ways of transferring wealth, there becomes an opportunity to fundamentally reshift workers' relationship to their labor mm-hmm. and how we see them or don't see them as commodities in a marketplace. And I know that y'all are right there thinking through all this stuff and are talking to companies who are, who are thinking through this stuff. Like, what should we be paying attention to over the next couple of months? Because it it's not a mature... Cryptocurrency is not mature. Blockchain is not mature yet. But what do you think, what should we be looking at as leaders, as workers? I mean, I would want you to answer that question. Oh, God. Well, if I had the answer, I would have just said it. It would have been a comment, not a question. (laughs) So easy. (laughs) I mean, for me, my brain goes to, in terms of what we should be looking for, my brain goes to what's the system Instead of like, what's the flashy thing? What are we striving for? So it's like looking for the conversations that are about equity in these emerging potential marketplaces. And I think your question about like, 
our relationship to our labor is like one of the biggest questions of our time. Yeah. Like what is our relationship to our own personal labor and why we work? And then what is our relationship to our workers? Like in, Lauren, we've talked about this, you know, it's just really stark to me that the way we've set it up, it ends up being that our financial structures in the arts are destabilizing mm-hmm. to the community that we exist to support and to celebrate and to share the artists. And so it's just, if you really break that down and if you had a magic wand and you could just be like, okay, so let's just look at this. We've got lots of money. We've got lots of institutions, small, medium, large. We've got a ton of beautiful artists working all across the country like how would we reshift this yeah. shit so that it goes in the right direction? And that, you know, I, I think Eric Tang from Cal Shakes, who is also exploring what it is like to create a floor for Cal Shakes artists, mm-hmm. you know, he articulated it really well. He's like, you know, if, if our artists, our core community is only stable when we hire them or cast them, mm-hmm like hire them to design, cast them or whatever. And then they're just unstable until we come back around. What's the point? Exactly. And so, you know, I think this idea of like, we're only as stable as our core community. Yeah. Is it, Tim, is it time for the suitcase question? I think it's time for the suitcase question. We have five minutes that we're landing the plane and have a little wrap up there. So go with it, Lauren. Yeah. So I'm going to be, Deborah. I'm going to be a real asshole and read back how we got to the suitcase question last year at the time you were reading Arahati Roy's pandemic is a portal. And you said what she's talking about, at least the way I read it is that this portal that we have to move through, this is a portal we have to move through and that we have a choice. We can either move through it really heavily with all our baggage. We can bring the racism. We can bring the avarice. We can bring the trauma. We can bring it all with us and we can trudge and fight and try so hard to not move through it or we can move through it lightly with very little. And if we do that, we can change everything, which is like beautiful. Tim and I somehow took that beautiful statement and we boiled it down in our hand-fisted way into the suitcase question, <laughs> which is similar to what Kate had in the chat. Personally, professionally, you've been traveling through your entire life with stuff. What's one thing that you had in your suitcase before the pandemic that's never going back in? Um, and what's a new thing that you're going to put in for the rest of your life? You even kind of prepared me for this and I find myself stumped, but let me give it a whirl. Yeah. I feel like I want to leave behind as much of this sort of top down as we can so that we can all understand our ability to work together to imagine something like we're in it. And I think what I would bring with me, I would still bring, as I said back then, we we leave behind our lack of imagination and we bring with us our collective ability to imagine something so powerful and equitable and good, you know, why not? So leave the lack of imagination and the fear behind and bring the imagination forward. I think I'll end it there. It's terrific. And well, next year we'll ask you the same question. I'm going to be ready next year. (laughs) (laughs) 
Deborah, thank you so much for being with us for this closing session at the summit. It's always wonderful to spend time with you and really appreciate you sharing your, your time, your wisdom with us during the summit. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I would spend all the time that I could in the world with the two of you. Yeah. No, same. Cool. Yes. Yeah. All right. Well, then we'll see you next hour. So anyhow, thank you. Uh, <laughs> Take care. Well, and with that, somehow we are at the end of the ethical reopening summit. It feels like we, really that we just got started. That was a whirlwind. It was a whirlwind. Thank you so much to each of you who have been here with us for it. Thanks to the incredible, for incredible eight sessions, eight conversations to our speakers, our panelists, for the engaging chats and questions that have been populating through, through the platform. If you miss us, you can always find us online at workshinsuck.co. If you really miss us, we're excited to announce that we're launching two new online courses in the coming months. The first is a 10-module course called Hire with Confidence. The second is a five-module course that Laura and I are teaching called Shared Leadership in Action. You can find more about those courses on the Work Should Suck website. Lauren, it is amazing that this all came together. And sincerely, thank you so much for helping make this a reality. And I really, uh, you're, the, you're the best person to do a group project with because you just run with it. I can't even keep up. <laughs> I also, there, like Diane Ragsdale's still awake. What is it, like 11 o'clock there? But no, this was like just really dope. It was one of the most beautiful things about doing digital events is it's like we get to be social while distant. We get to be intimate while we're far away. And I'm just, it's really great to spend time talking about just a better way of living and a better way of, of being human together as we're, as we're all sort of, or most of us are really working to make the world a little bit more hospitable. For folks. So this was this was dope, Tim. And thanks for the idea and the opportunity. Yeah. And with that, I guess, you know, we're gonna close and have to end the broadcast. Yes, we um, are. See y'all uh, later. Uh, yeah. More thanks. Take care, everyone. Find more about the Ethical Reopening Summit, including speaker bios and session recaps at workshouldsuck.co backslash ethical hyphen reopening hyphen summit hyphen twenty twenty one. If you've enjoyed the conversation or are just feeling generous today, please consider writing a review on iTunes so that others who might be interested in the topic can join the fun too. Give it a thumbs up or a five stars or phone a friend, whatever your podcasting platform of choice offers. Until next time, thanks for listening.